Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. Every single episode of this show is available free of charge, more than 500 episodes, all available for free. There is an Other People app that, too, is free. Everything is free. So if you like the program and you want to throw some money down big time, now's your chance. Go to, uh, go to uh, what is it, patreon.com slash otherpplpod, Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod support the show it's a listener supported show what do you think possible all right thank you you are not alone you have found other people you and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the <laughs> right. Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I have Elif Bodeman on the program today. She is the author of a novel called The Idiot. It is now out in paperback from Penguin. She was literally just here, just like a few minutes ago. She was here. She uh, made some time for me during her uh, stop on book tour in Los Angeles. I'm very grateful for that. And uh, I'm delighted to share this conversation with you momentarily. Elif is uh, also a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. Perhaps you've read her work there. We're going to discuss all of the above in just a moment. Uh, I did get some mail I want to read. I got a letter from a listener named Shannon. She writes, Hi, Brad. You talk about your own writing frequently, and I've always been curious about what you're working on these days. I think you should consider sharing a snippet of your writing during your intro monologues every now and then. Best Shannon. You know, I, I feel like it's a little self-indulgent. That's the, I think that's part of the fear. It's like, is it self-indulgent to do that? Uh, and then I also just don't have like a strong impulse to do that very often. But if you want to hear a snippet, I'll, I'll, I'll read a snippet for you. I will read, uh, three short paragraphs. How's that for a snippet? Is that what a snippet is? What is a snippet? Maybe I should have some, like a com- some musical, uh, musical accompaniment. Play some snippet music.
I went to the grocery store. I was restless. We needed food. I drove to Trader Joe's and filled the cart. In the checkout line, I noticed that there was a mute guy in front of me. It seemed like he was actually mute. He was probably in his 60s and was dressed in these odd mustard-colored pants, and there was a large wad of floral print paper towels sticking out of one of the front pockets. He couldn't or wouldn't talk, but instead communicated with the female cashier using an assortment of hand signals. As I stood there watching all of this transpire, I considered how it might be funny, when my turn came up, to pretend that I too was mute, to make the cashier think that somehow she was ringing up two mutes in a row. But in the end, I didn't have the nerve to do it. I didn't have what it took to manage that kind of performance. Later, as I drove home, I worried that there might be something wrong with me for having considered such a thing in the first place. So there you go, Shannon. There's a snippet of my uh, work. I was actually noodling with this book today. It's the same book. It's the same book that has been torturing me for God knows how many years. And I just keep noodling with it. That's all I do. I just noodle with this book. I reconfigure it. I rejigger it. I change the, uh, it's like, is it in third person? Let's make it in first person. Is it in present tense? Let's make it in past tense. Is this a major storyline? Let's get rid of that. Is there a solid narrative structure? Let's get rid of that. Let's particleize this. Let's atomize this. Let's hit it with a sledgehammer, break it into a thousand shards, try to reassemble it somehow into something that seems cohesive. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is Elif Bottoman. She uh, is out there now on tour for the paperback release of The Idiot. It's a terrific debut novel available from Penguin Books. And uh, like I said earlier, you can also track down Aleph's work in the New Yorker magazine, where she is a staff writer. So uh, here she is. This is Aleph Bottoman. It's become normal and awful, and it's hard to remember a time when there was even anything magical and promising about it. Yeah, it's like the bane of everybody's existence. Yes, exactly. What, what, went, what went wrong for email? I guess just too much spam. I guess. And I mean, in the old days, it was kind of this new technology that gave you this feeling that there were all of these possibilities for it. And nothing like nothing shitty happened over email. Like your, if um, your, your, none of your assignments were due over email, you didn't get emails from the doctor's office. 
people who really wanted to call you to bother you about something would call you. So it was just this communication that existed without any purpose. So you could kind of had this feeling that you could just invent whatever purpose you wanted for it. Well, and yeah. And I think it also like, it seemed to be at its best, like a resuscitation of the epistolary mode of communication exactly. that used to dominate yeah. like way back when. Yeah. And I always find it, uh, I always like, like to joke that getting a letter in the mail is the most underrated form of entertainment. <laughs> and it's so rare. Like yeah, when somebody, for sure. when somebody really writes to you, mm-hmm. uh, I, but I have to footnote that and I'm going to get to it, but, uh, my overarching point remains like, I really do love to get good mail Oh, and I hope that I've sent at least a few good letters. Mm-hmm. And so email sort of was that, or could be that, um, and I, I guess too, like it, it could also be for somebody who like me, uh, was a little bit awkward, especially in dating with dating mm-hmm. and stuff like that. For sure. It, I mean, I guess like social media then took on, you know, a lot of this role and then now it's like exploded in a million different directions, but I always felt better in writing. Like this was a way for me to present myself. Yeah. I think people. for people, for writers, our age, it must have the same kind of special meaning because we all preferred writing to interacting in person. We were all <laughs> at this young, horrible, awkward age in the mid nineties or early nineties or whenever, whenever email came around. And I, I'm sure that many of us used it for that. But it, like, you know, we're a couple years apart or two or three years apart. I think I'm a little bit older, but I don't remember anybody dating. There wasn't like courtship. Like, you know what I'm saying? I guess some people did, but it didn't feel like that was, there was no, there was no normal set of circumstances or procedures to follow it. I don't know. I, I didn't, I could never figure out how to initiate. Maybe there, maybe I was just missing it. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I definitely wasn't dating, but I had an impression that everyone else was, but maybe um, me too. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's, I mean, maybe they it, were, maybe they were, maybe that's what the, that's why we were on email. Like going, wow, this is great. I can actually like communicate to somebody. Um, so you are like, let's go back to the beginning. You, you talked during, uh, when we, I think we were sound checking, mm. um, about being born in New, New York. Yes, that's right. But raised in New Jersey. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then are you first generation? Um, yeah, my parents came, uh, they finished medical school in Turkey. They met at medical school in Ankara and they came to Jersey city, New Jersey to do their medical residency. And, um, that's where I lived in the, until I was five. And then they moved to the suburbs. Oh, so both of your parents are doctors. Mm-hmm, that's right. What kind of doctors? My father's a nephrologist and my mother's a hematologist. Okay. Is nephrology kidneys? That's a, yeah, exactly. Okay. And Second most complicated organ after the brain, as nephrologists love to tell you. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, does, well, the kidney does a lot of stuff. What does it do? Well, you think of the liver as, as the thing that detoxifies you, but apparently it's actually the kidney regulates all like if it regulates how much water you drink and your salt and you know what, I don't know, but it, it's, it's hard and it does it all. And so, and so you're the child of two like sciencey medical people Yeah, yeah. and you are somebody who I think from a very young age wanted to be in the arts and wanted to be a writer. Yeah. I want to be a writer from a very early age, I guess. I mean... I don't know. I'm the child of two overachievers and, uh, in, in secondary schools in Turkey, um, 
when my parents were growing up, and I think to to an extent now, you would take a you would take well definitely now you take an exam at the end of secondary school, and then that determines what you go into university for. And there's no like four year liberal arts program or anything like that. You go right into whatever you go into. And at that time, if you got the highest score, you became a doctor. So it kind of didn't matter. It almost didn't matter what you were interested in. So they they both became doctors. I don't know that they would have. I think my mother probably would not have become a doctor if um, she hadn't just scored this particular score on a test when she was 17. Um, But yeah, so then they came to Jersey City and they were super busy and working all the time. And uh, I didn't have any siblings, so I read a lot. And and my father taught me to read um, when I was like three or four. I was really little and um, I loved to carry heavy books around the house and it made me feel important. I was already really concerned with um, feeling important and dignified. Um, yeah, so, so I spent a lot of time reading and, and got a lot of comfort from books and from an early age, I wanted to do that for other people to make people feel as, um, actually I, I found books extremely funny and I noticed that, that ability to turn unpleasant, alienating experiences into shared, um, joy inducing experiences through humor. Um, and that was something that I associated with, with, I mean, later with novels, but, but always with, with literature, with just, you know, pages of, with words on them and no pictures and nothing else. And that's what I wanted to be able to do for, for people. Just to like take those, like the, the humiliations. Yeah, of life. exactly. Just, life is humiliating. It really is. It's one indignity after another. Well, okay. So speaking I'm so of... glad we're on the same page about this. <laughs> oh, wait, you have no idea. Uh, so I've been working on a book. Uh, That's because I want to make this about me for just a second. Oh yeah, let's do it. But it speaks to like the themes of your book and the youthful idiocy and you know, how like misguided we can be mm-hmm. despite best intentions. Yeah. Even, and we don't realize it. No, you know? we don't. So I, uh, I found this document. I've been tweeting about this and it, like, it, it's truly painful for me. Yeah. It's 900,000 words that I wrote in my early twenties. Oh my gosh. And I've been reading it and I'm like, you can, I almost have tears in my eyes. Like it's so <laughs> upsetting, like emails, letters, attempts at fiction, and it's so bad. Is it one file or is it? It's one giant file. It's one Microsoft Word document. Wow. And it's just like, you just scroll through time and it's like, yeah. letter, like letters that I wrote to my grandmother now, you know, now deceased where I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, it's like, I, it's like, I want to help the person like yeah. reach into the computer and just like yeah. slap my former self. And so the question that I have for you is that, you know, you, the, the idiot is based on something that you had written, mm-hmm. I guess, grad school. You were a mm-hmm. little, you were a little bit wiser than mm-hmm. like the undergrad version mm-hmm. of you, but you were still very young. Yeah. So when you went back to revisit this and to say, yeah. oh, I'm going to, this is the, the novel that I'm going to write. Like how much work did you have to do on the text? How much of that sense of humiliation or yeah. like, oh my God, what was I thinking was there? Or was it relatively like well No, formed? no, no. I had a very similar experience to the experience that you described, which is I, um, so first it was on FTP and then I migrated it to OneDrive and then eventually it got to Google Drive. And um, I, it was also insanely long. It was like 400,000 words because that's all we had to do then, right? Was we would just like sit there and write these crazy things. And it was this feeling that some crazy kid had written this incredibly long document and dumped it on my computer. And I was kind of as a 38 year old person, um, I was actually, I was in Tuscany on a, on a writing fellowship, 
um, in, in the countryside, uh, surrounded by pugs. There, there were like a lot of pugs around and it was just like a dream. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was this wonderful, wonderful fellowship that, um, Beatrice Monti does. She's the, the widow of Gregor von Rizzori, the interwar novelist, and she loves pugs and she always has a few of them that are alive. And then there's also these monuments to the ones that are dead with all of their names because they don't live very long. They're not a hardy species. Uh, we just had a French bulldog that died last year. Oh, I'm sorry to he hear that. choked on a bagel. That's why we have oh, a puppy goodness. now. Yeah. I've been seeing your puppy frolic behind you at the window it's adorable oh so, so she's outside yeah oh good yeah yeah, yeah. that yeah. means she's not peeing in the house yeah, so. exactly <laughs> she's experiencing all of the joy and freedom that we intellectuals are not feeling <laughs> so it's good so um, italian so, yeah. countryside so italian countryside i was trying to write another book that i had a contract to write which was also autobiographical but it was supposed to be set in 2010 and I kept having flashbacks because the the story I was telling to, trying to tell was was sort of complicated and in, involved, and um, it was supposed to start in 2010, and then it went back to 2008, and then it went back to 2005, and uh, at some point I I started writing about what that person who was really basically me, um, was like in college and I was sitting in Tuscany surrounded by pugs living and dead. And I didn't remember anything. I mean, I was just like making stuff up. And then I thought, well, I wrote a whole book about this. Didn't I, why don't I just look and see what it was? And I knew it was going to be really painful. And I don't know if I would have been able to necessarily download it and look at it if I hadn't been somewhere. So, you know, just, uh, um, removed from my, my ordinary life and, uh, routine, and it was, it, it, it was extremely, ex, uh, it's so hard to describe that. I mean, definitely the first experience was horror and some degree of shame and really a lot of pity. I also wanted to go back and tell that person so many things. The other thing I realized is that as you said, I, I, I wrote it when I was 23 about when I was 18. So already by 23, I thought, that as an 18 year old, I, I, I was ashamed already of the things that I'd done when I was 18. Um, so there was a, there was the, I, I had, I had one year of graduate school. So I knew about the difference between the narrator and the protagonist. And, uh, the idea was that the narrator was, was much smarter and older and wiser than the protagonist. And there was this kind of distancing of, um, where the narr there were flash forwards and the narrator would be like, Oh, of course, when we're young, we don't realize we're so stupid. And then when we're older, we learn, you know, of course, these obvious things, and, um, but of course that older, wiser person was actually 23 and I was reading these things at age 38 and, um, the 23 year old things seemed even more appalling than the 18 year old things, because at least when I was 18, I didn't have all these ideas about how smart I was. Yeah. You, there's like no arrogance or delusions of grandeur. Yeah, or maybe... there, there were, there were, but there were, I wasn't trying to theorize about them. And, and when I, when I reread that material and I was able to separate from just the, the first kind of visceral feeling of horror. Um, I felt, I saw that I had been ashamed when I was 23 of how I'd been when I was 18. And I felt as I read some kind of distance coming in where I felt like that 18 year old person was a different person from me. So I no longer had to feel ashamed. Like it was still, I could still see how embarrassing and awkward it was, but it seemed like almost like it was a different person. And also like, it felt like a science experiment. Like, Oh, if you took a person and you, 
and you had them in this environment and you exposed them to this and then you moved them to this other environment, here are the kinds of things that they would be able to do and here are the things they wouldn't be able to do. Here's what they would understand and what they would misunderstand. And like, what's there to be ashamed? There's plenty to be embarrassed about because of all the mistakes and, and you know, varyingly comic and upsetting situations that could come out. But why should anyone be ashamed of anything, which is really a wonderful place to, to get to eventually when you're working on anything or writing anything. So um, that was actually what made me want to go back to it. And um, one, one of the things that made me want to go back to it. And I found that the parts that were the most valuable to me were, and, and the most precious were the, the unmediated descriptions of the awkward and confusing things that happened to the 18 year old rather than the pontifications of the person who was 23. So I just cut all of those out and I kept the, the 18 year old stuff um, and called it the idiot. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, it's a unique situation where you're 38 when you're working on this mm-hmm. and you've, you're looking at a piece of writing that's 15 years old. Yeah. And so, you know, depending on how, how many books one hopes to write. Yeah. And I would assume you, you're trying to continue working and publishing. Mm-hmm. It's not likely that you're going to have that kind of gap to like, let a piece I of know. text yeah. sort of cool. Yeah. And then you, it's an you, amazing opportunity. It is. Yeah. And, and, but it also strikes me as, um, like a rare and then like be enviable and then see, I find myself wondering, and this is some sort of creative block that I have to get over is that, uh, because I can basically look backwards at anything I've written mm-hmm. and be sort of horrified. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, it's like, what an idiot. Yeah. Then whenever I'm sitting down like now to yeah. write, I'm like in two years, I'm going to look at this and realize what an idiot I was. Like you can never escape it. So you just have to kind of just give up and let yourself be an idiot. Yeah. But- I think you do have to give up and let yourself be an idiot. <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, do you have that or do you feel like you achieve a certain level of intelligence or maturity and you realize you've, you've got some sort of baseline? No, I mean, I think it, I think it, it tapers a little bit. It, um, like it's not between, I think when you're 19 and you read something that you wrote when you were 18, you're like horrified and appalled. And I mean, I think it's less drastic between 40 and 39, but, um, but I, I definitely do feel cause you, you, I mean, I think the the reading and editing part of your brain and the writing part of your brain are very different and they have different capabilities. And I don't know that the, in my case, the editing part of my brain is, I think, a little bit smarter and more sophisticated than the writing part of my brain, or it's just, it's easier to see what's, what's wrong with something than it is to create something wonderful. Um, I, I spent many years, uh, studying literary criticism and it's, it's, it's something that I can, I can do. Um, and that I think that most writers can do. And I think you just have to disable that part of your brain while you're writing and just not think about it. I also had the experience of, so the first book I wrote about, um, uh, called the possessed adventures with, with Russian books and the people who read them, which was about, um, it's supposed to be funny. It's about being a a grad student in Russian literature. Uh, so I published that in 2010 and, uh, then 
the idiot just came out last year and I did an audiobook of the idiot and they said, well, why don't you just do an audiobook of the possessed too? So I had this experience of sitting in a sound studio reading aloud this book that I'd written in, you know, 2009. And it was uh, a lot of the parts of it had been written much earlier than that. And it was just mortifying. And, and it just felt like, like torture to be locked up there with your own like Cause the worst, the worst punishments are the ones that you know that you brought on yourself right. and just, and, and also as a writer, I think you're always, you always have um, some thought that, I don't know, I always have a thought that I haven't truly expressed any of the things I want to express yet. And the next thing is going to be the one where I do it. And I'm always very excited to go and do the next thing. And there was something very um, punitive about being forced to be in a room to like, go through the past with that level of granularity, like rereading a book that I'd written a long time ago. And I, I found myself wanting to change everything and, and going through it and being like, you know, how did nobody fix all of these things? And then I sort of got through that too. And, um, and partly it was from, from talking to readers who, who had read the possessed the way it was and, and had responded to that. And I just was able eventually to almost through a po- process of fatigue and attrition that I feel like I experience sometimes with editing too. You send up, you send a text back and forth and back and forth. And after a while you're, you're somehow okay with it, I guess, just because you can't fight anymore. But I, I reached that point with the possessed where I was like, wait, that just is the book that it is. And it's not mine anymore. It's not me anymore. It, some readers have a relationship with it and that's, that's great. And it, like, we always see the warts on our own work. Yeah. Like, you know, we're, you, like everyone tends to be their own worst critic. Oh, then I had this experience that I, I, the, one of my favorite novels that I read in college was the portrait of a lady by Henry James. And I really, I just adored that book. And I, uh, then I lost my copy and I was trying to reread it. And all of these lines that I remembered weren't there. And it was so much worse than I remembered. And I was getting really upset and thinking I was crazy. And then, um, then I looked it up and I was reading the New York edition, which Henry James revised, I think 20 years after he wrote the original and it's, he really changed a lot of things and not for the better. I, I don't think for the better, there, yeah, there's a kind of, um, I, he made things more kind of, there's more hedging. There's less, I don't know, to, to me, he, he took some of the funnier lines and toned them down a little bit. And I, I don't know. I just love the first. So then I thought, oh, nobody knows. Nobody's like writers, older writers aren't the best arbiters of the work that they wrote when they were younger. Yeah. I was going to say like, I, I totally understand that impulse to want to mm-hmm. go back and like fix it up. Yeah. But you, I think you have to resist. Yeah. You, you have to resist. You've got to let it be. That's the book that he, that was the book that yeah. he wrote when he was whatever age, Exactly. you know, and especially the, especially I think when we're younger, we're funny in a way that we're not necessarily when we're older because we're more afraid and we know more. And that was actually one of the happier, some of the happier moments I had while rereading the idiot draft were when I just saw kinds of jokes that I wouldn't make anymore. And sometimes they seemed kind of like, I don't know, like obnoxious, but, but in the end it was kind of a pleasure to leave them in because it just felt like, I don't know, like the, like this crazy, funny kid went and wrote this kind of angry, sad, weird, funny book. It it just seemed like kind of a gift from some other person. And I think, I guess that's what, what made me able to be sort of generous with it was because so much time had passed that it, it really did feel like another person wrote it. And I got kind of a free pass from the, from the shame that one feels. Yeah. Did you like, did you like yourself? Like when you read yourself 15 years prior, or did you come away being like, she's okay. Like I, I, I have affection for her. Or were you like, ugh. <laughs> 
I mean, I I'm had projecting, both. by the way. I had both. I definitely felt a lot of frustration and and it's so hard to to put this into words that whatever voice is the voice that talks to one in one's head for me is not a kind and gentle voice and when it's when it says that something should have been or could have been different could have been easier it it says that with a lot of anger and criticism and i did have that voice to some extent like why did you make everything so much harder than it had to be couldn't you see what this person was trying to tell you it was so obvious but then i don't know i guess when i when i read more of it or when i got into some kind of um when i got into the rhythm of reading it it i was able to get past that and to to see that that based on the background that I had and what I knew, you know, people are the way that we know things and the way that things become obvious to us is through an accumulation and an accretion of almost, you know, sedimentary layers of knowing things. And we all acquire them in different orders. And before you have them all, you don't have them all. And you can't really blame someone for not getting them in a certain order um, yeah. So I guess, I guess I felt, I learned to feel tolerant to myself and to some extent to other people, although it's always easier to be tolerant to oneself than to other people. Well, and you know, the thing like there, people get it in different, at different speeds, Yeah. you know? And so you're a smart person. You went to Harvard, you went to Stanford, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, like those kinds of markers, like people would say, oh, she's an intelligent, smart person, but, uh, like emotional intelligence, being good at life mm-hmm. and being good at school. Yeah. They aren't very they, different. They are very different. Very different. Reading books and reading people. Also, I mean, people are, in some ways I had a relatively cosmopolitan upbringing. Like I, I grew up near enough to New York city to go there and to, you know, go to museums and, and concerts. And we went to Turkey every summer to visit my family. So I had some experience of seeing another country, but in other ways there were just these, there was so much that I had no idea about. And and I mean, everyone is like that with these huge blind spots of what they know and what they don't know and what kinds of lives they're aware of and what kinds of lives they're not aware of. And you don't even realize the things that you don't know until you know them. One of the, the very jarring experiences of going back to this text was um, the main character, Céline, describes going to college classes and, you know, listening to her professors and being like, what is this person talking about this? And, and being really outraged, being like, how, how dare this person stand up in front of me and say something that doesn't make sense? Like, is this why, (laughs) this is why my mother, my mother is borrowing from her retirement to send me to the most famous university in America. Like it it was, uh, and, and I, I, I remember having thoughts and feelings like that when I, when I, was a first year student in college, but by the time I was 38 reading, um, rereading that, you know, it was, yeah, it had been 15 years since I wrote it, 20 years since I'd lived it and been a first year student. And in between I had the experience of, you know, getting a literature doctorate, teaching undergraduates. And I, I knew how hard it was to, to teach undergraduates. And I felt much closer to the professors than I did to the students. And it was very, I mean, I had to, I, when I when I read it, I felt I had to actually tone down the portrayal of the professors to make it less kind of mean because it, when I read it, I felt a pang because I thought of my own interactions with, with students. And it really made me think about how how hard it is to communicate 
Um, so, so as a, as a teacher, you, again, you have all of these layers of knowledge that you've acquired and you have to convey them to a person who, who doesn't have those particular layers and you can't even remember what it was like not to have them. So you have to sort of imaginatively translate your state of mind into what you think is something that the person with the other state of mind can understand. And it, it made me a lot more conscious of that. The, the process of revision made me more conscious of that and also more conscious of the, you know, when I, when I wrote the first draft, I kind of just thought I was like writing a, I was just writing life as it was. And when I looked back at it, I saw, you know, time had turned it into a historical novel. And I saw also that it was sort of a, it was a campus novel and I, and it was, you know, a sort of a Bildungsroman. And I, I could understand that form as being the story of the, how those sediments pile up on top of each other and how kind of messy it is right at the beginning at the bottom phase, which is something that one loses touch of when one's older because it's so hard to remember what it was like. And yet uh, when you revisit the text, um, you see your, I mean, it's still you. Mm -hmm. And like what I found is that I'm like, oh my God, like the same preoccupations I have now were there. Yeah. Like they're there from, yeah. like some of the stuff is, there's a through line yeah. and, and, and you kind of see yourself and you go, wow, like yeah. I was, I was confused about that then and I'm confused yeah. about it now and I keep It's turning, almost like, you know, yeah, when you read about like identical twins who are separated and then they have the same life, it's like when you look back at your earlier self, you're like, oh my God, that person has all of the same tics and behaviors that I do. Yeah. It's, yeah. I actually, that was another reason why I, I um, why I, wanted to go back and turn this into a novel before I wrote the book I was working on. The book I was trying to write was called The Two Lives. And it was um, the, the phrase The Two Lives comes from a short story by Chekhov called The Lady with the Little Dog about a man who realizes that he's living two lives. He's having a love affair and he realizes that he has one life that runs its course in secret and another life that's his, his public life. And at that time I was working as a magazine writer and I felt like I had one life that was the life that was in magazine articles and another life that was equally true and and sort of included the magazine articles but was but was also so i was trying to write a Wait, book what about was the second life the first life was the magazine article yeah life. the first life was the matter so so when you're so the the kinds of articles i was writing they took me about three months each and um they were on very different subjects so i remember at one point i was writing one about dante and then after dante i did one about soccer fanatics and after that i did one about endangered birds and then i did one about kafka so for like three months i was like Dante, 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 Dante. And then I was like, soccer fanatics, soccer fanatics, soccer fanatics. And you're like an insane person because, and, and you can't include any of the stuff that makes, you know, cause you as a writer are a person who is interested in all of these subjects and they're all part of the human condition. And you're, you're pursuing them because you as a person have certain interests and certain questions that you're trying to explore. Meanwhile, you have a personal life that causes you to have certain questions about how the world works and how to live, especially I was in my early thirties. And that was a time when I was thinking a lot about like, what is the way to set up a household? Like what is the ideal structure for society and whatever I was writing about, whether it was the, you know, fan organizations or the lives of the bird watchers or Dante or whatever, that's what I was thinking about. But I couldn't write about that in each article because the people who are reading the article really just want to read about the thing they're reading an the article. They don't want my whole intellectual and personal history. So I was trying to write a book that would unite those things and to find a, a mode of writing that would be able to unite those two lives. And I thought of it at first, I thought of going back to this, um, this earlier college book as sort of an escape from that. And then as I was going through the manuscript, I found this sentence that said, um, I, 
I began to feel that I was living two lives. One consisted of the emails I was writing with Yvonne and the other consisted of my schoolwork and the interactions I had with my friends. And then I remembered that, of course, I'd already read that Chekhov story at that point. And I already was experiencing the two lives, this problem that I thought as being this difficult problem that I only became aware of in my 30s was already there. And so I felt like I really had to write that book first and come to terms with it. It almost felt like I had some, you know, half, all these metaphors get really disgusting, especially when people start talking about books as children. It's, it always gets gross yet. I'm going to do it anyway. So uh, it was a kind of like, there's just some misshapen child that I was like, had locked up in a room and was ignoring. And I realized that I had to like open the door and be like, okay, come out. Let's, it's, you know, I'll, I'll stop. But <laughs> but like, it, it's something like the, the two things, having two things going at once. Yeah. That's, that's you. You still do, right? You're yeah, working on a book. Course, you're doing yeah. your New, you, you write for the New Yorker. I do write for the New Yorker. I, and then I, you know, I did a dissertation in literature on double entry bookkeeping in the novel. And it was really about the doubleness of the novel and how there's a column of credits and a column of debits. And yeah, I mean, we don't really ever get away from who we are. The other thing that I've realized recently is that one can realize things, especially about oneself, multiple times. And you would think, oh, if, I, if I'm realizing the same thing again, that should not be called realizing. That should be called remembering. And yet one doesn't experience it as remembering. I think realization, we, we tend to think of it as being a sudden process and we write about it that way. That And then I realized and then everything was different. But I think we have that moment again and again and again. And often what we realize is the same thing or is, is you know, so for me, yeah, it is something about two things going on at the same. Maybe I'm going to get... You um, have varied interests. Yeah. Right? I mean, and you yeah. have like, and you, and you have a lot of... Uh... Uh, not like, what am I, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you need a lot of creative outlets. I guess so, but not like there's some, there's something about having two of them that are all like going back and forth between the two things rather than having like some huge palette of, of diverse things that. And do you find, I mean, cause they're different. Mm -hmm. it's, it's different to write for the New Yorker than it is to work on a novel. Yeah. And did you bounce back and forth between the two as you were going? Like, did you find like if the novel was slow going or you were just getting kind of bogged down you turn to like an article and get some relief, but still make progress on something and maybe get some ideas that you bring back to the novel somehow. I would love to be able to work that way. Um, and I think that it's theoretically possible. I haven't totally hammered out the details yet. Mostly I do magazine work when I have a deadline or some kind of requirement. And then the rest of the time I do book work, but they really complement each other very well. And I experience it in kind of a, a painful way where you know, sometimes when I'm doing magazine work and, and reporting, I have this feeling of like, I'm like, I'm running after other people and taking down their stories. And I'm sort of, a, a um, you become kind of, uh, just a, an outlet and a, and a vehicle for other people's stories. And sometimes after you're pursuing a person for a while and they tell you a lot of crazy things that contradict each other, it starts to feel very peculiar. And you're like, well, why, why am I not, why am I listening to this person's story? I should be, I should be trying to come to terms with something I can actually control. But then when you're writing about yourself in the way that one can in a novel and about the process of thought and just what it, the experience of being alive, which is what I look to novels for, um, for better or worse, the, the medium that those truths express themselves in are incredibly trivial and personal things. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting there in my room writing about how 
like I spilled something in 15 years ago and then some guy said something that made me upset. And then I'm like, why am I sitting here in this room? Like, who is asking me to do this to like, (laughs) (laughs) to have this? How is this my job that I have to sit here and remember something unpleasant that happened in like 1998? And yet they're actually... There's a, there's a way of when I'm, (laughs) there's a positive way of looking at them, which I'm trying, which I achieve sometimes for very brief periods. And I'm trying to prolong those periods and achieve them for longer, where it feels like a wonderful privilege to get to go and talk to people who are out in the world doing things that I can't possibly imagine. That's the, like, that's the gift of talking to other people is that they surprise you and the, you know, the intersection between them and, you know, their desires and intentions and the world is something that comes to you from the outside. And then it's a wonderful gift to be able to sit in a room and really think about the effect that hearing certain, you know, the the effect that learning and and thinking certain things in a certain order had on a person, which has to be yourself, basically, because you don't have access to anyone else. And um, I know that there is a way of balancing those that's going to be really humanizing and enriching, which I feel is, is very close but I don't quite have it yet. You'll figure it out. I'll figure it you're out. On, yeah, I mean, you're you. on your way. You've done a ton of work. I mean, you've done a ton of uh, journalistic work and you know, a novel is a big project. It's a big project. Even if it's yeah. one book, it's a big project and you've got two books now. Oh, thank you. I didn't mean to make you give me a pep talk, but thank you. I appreciate <laughs> no, that. I'm just, I'm just saying that like, it's, you know, it strikes me and I, you know, I'm uh, kind of talking to myself too. It, it's, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. There's not, sure. like, not, there's not like really a terminus. I guess. Yeah. Like the two lines will just get closer. Yeah. Um, so you taught, you said something earlier, you said you're the child of two overachievers mm-hmm. and people could probably, you could probably be fairly characterized as an overachiever. You've achieved a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder about overachieving. Mm-hmm. Is that a genetic thing or is that a, like, is it nature or nurture? I think it's a combination. I think for my parents, um, they're from a generation in Turkey for whom a lot of things were possible that were not possible for previous generations, especially for my mother. Um, so her mother could not have become a doctor just because that, that wouldn't have been possible for, for a woman of my grandmother's generation in Turkey. And, uh, and my mother could, and my father also came from a, um, a sort of middle, lower middle class background from uh, Adana, which is in the south of Turkey. And um, he he also, both of my parents were, they're, they're, they're very idealistic. They embraced science and secularism and the goals of the Turkish Republic in this very, um, very organic and very passionate way. And they, they were conscious of this kind of a, a du- duty to, um, to make the most of these opportunities that they had, which it's, it's a combination of, of nature and culture because other people were in the same culture and didn't feel that way. But without, without that, that historical story of, you know, Atatürk rescuing the decayed Ottoman empire from the ruins of world war one and creating the Turkish Republic in the name of secularism and science and positivism and sending forth Turkish scientists into the Western world. And, you know, there, there were various ideas about, uh, nationalism. It's funny because Atatürk is, is the father of Turkish nationalism, but in a way he also created this idea of Turkey that, uh, Turkish people have, although other, other countries don't have it about 
Turkey, which is, I, I see is very painful to, to some Turkish people, but that Turkey was a, a part of the rest of the world. And that was almost, if you were Turkish, you were from the whole rest of the world. And, and my parents were, were, you know, immigrated to America as, as scientists and, and thought, because that's where the, the best technology was. And, and that made perfect sense to them. Um, and I grew up very conscious of conscious of the sacrifices that they made, conscious of how different my life was from the lives of women in earlier generations of my family, and even to an extent different from the lives of my cousins who were growing up in Turkey. And I also felt an obligation to, um, to make the most of that. And also a feeling that like, if there was any, if there were any smart people, if there was any like smart shit going down, I was going to be there and figure out what it was. Like I, I just had this feeling. I mean, it's, it's, I think that's in a way what made my parents emigrate was this feeling that like wh whatever's in the world that's going on, that's like, cool. I have a right to be at the table. I have almost a duty to be at the table, to work really hard and to get there and to see what's going on and to participate in it and to like advance human culture and technology. And I, I did have that feeling, which some people in my family have, and some of them don't. So I think it's a combination of nature and culture. And, you know, like I think people listen, Listening, uh, many of whom are trying to write or writing or you know some combination mm -hmm. um they would look at you and they'd say she's a staff writer at the new yorker she's published a novel she's on this book tour like how do you how did you do all that like how do you get into the new yorker oh that was a lot of luck actually um i got into the new yorker um I was writing for uh, the magazine N plus one, which is a, a wonderful uh, independent small magazine, which was at that point very new. I think I wrote for issue number two. And how did you even find out about it back then? I found out about it because of the power of connections and, and Harvard university, because uh, the founders were my classmates. They were, um, I think two years ahead of me at Harvard and they remembered something I'd written for the literary magazine which was about how I'd written an essay. I, I, I wanted to be a fiction writer and I was very bad at writing fiction, although I did it anyway. Uh, then I, I went to Moscow to study abroad and um, I, I wanted to have an internship working for a literary magazine in Moscow, even though my, my Russian was terrible. And I, I convinced this uh, woman to, to give me an internship, I guess. Um, although she didn't really want an intern. So I would just sort of appear at her house anyway. So I wrote an essay about that and about like, she would be like, Oh, it's you again. And then she would like, think of some work for me to do. And I was like, do it. But so, yeah, so I wrote about like what I learned about literature from doing that. Um, and they were like, Oh, that was great. Could you write something like that? And actually at the time that I got that email from them, I was having a very similar, not, not very similar, but somewhat reminiscent experience at Stanford, where I was working on a conference about the work of Isaac Babel, the, this great short story writer, uh, Russian, Jewish, Soviet, um, famous for these, this 1920s story cycle that he wrote uh, called the Red Cavalry Stories. And they're, they're very mysterious. And he, you know, he was executed when he was in his, uh, he, I guess in his forties, he must've been, but he, he did not live to, to his whole career. And there, uh, so there was this conference on his life and there were all these scholars who were trying to write his biography, which has many gaps in it and is very mysterious. And, uh, the, the conference was called the Enigma of Isaac Babel and Babel's relatives were, came there. And the person who was supposed to pick, pick them up from the airport broke his foot at a 
at a techno dance event. So, so I had to go pick them up. A techno dance event? Yeah. A techno dance event <laughs> called Euromed. And, um, and I, I lost them at the airport. And then there were these Chinese filmmakers there who were trying to adapt Babel's red cavalry stories to Northern China and to Manchuria. And the, the, so I saw all of these different conversations between people who are really not speaking the same language. And it was just so fascinating. And there was some sense that we were all there because of this small, mysterious body of fiction that this man who was later brutally murdered had left behind and that had somehow, you know, reached us through the effort and care of others. So I, I, I wanted to write some, something fictional about that. And the editors of the N plus one of N plus one persuaded me, they, uh, you know, and I, when I told my editor, Keith Gessen, who has a wonderful novel that's coming out very soon called a terrible country about his, uh, experiences in, in Moscow in the, uh, 2000s it's a, it's really really good anyway it's so a he novel? was yeah yeah he was my my editor and he was when i described the piece i wanted to write he was like oh that's actually an essay so i i wrote this very long essay which they very generously published at a long length and uh david remnick just happened to read it and said um would you like to pitch me something for the new yorker and i was like of course but i didn't know what pitching was and i didn't really know what I, I didn't know anything. So David Remnick emailed you? Yeah, he emailed me. God, what in the, just out of the blue? Yeah, just out of the blue. What do you, do you think it's like spam or something? Like, what do you, Yeah. I, what do you do when you get an email from David Remnick at the New Yorker? I thought I was dreaming. And um, then I came to New York and I met him. And I just remember he told me a story about going to the Tolstoy Museum in Moscow and riding on Tolstoy's bicycle that I think Bob Dylan had rid on, ridden on. See, I'm, I can't even speak English when I describe this because it just blew my mind so much. But um, then I, I pitched a story, which I, you know, I was living in San Francisco. I didn't know anything that was going on, but I was taking Thai kickboxing classes. And I found out that my teacher had been um, a teen champion, t- teen Muay Thai champion in, in Thailand. And that before that he'd been, um, he, as a child, he herded water buffalo. He, he had this interesting life and career. Um, so I was like, could I write about him? And, and David Remnick kindly said yes. And, and I wrote my first piece about that. And then after that, um, I, I kept sort of freelancing for them for a while. And then uh, I did that for, I guess, about four years. And then, um, then The Possessed came out. And then I, uh, I got a job in Istanbul, uh, working for a university there, Koch University, as a writer in residence. So I just moved to Istanbul, and then um, that's when I became a staff writer. They, uh, I started writing about Turkey for the New Yorker, and they didn't have anyone there then, and, well, and there better? was so much going on. It was a, it was a wonderful time and, and place to be. I was going to say, there's a, I mean, the, what years were those? That was 2010 to the... I left in 2013, but I, I did... The last story I did was from 2014. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, you know, I'm not, I'm no expert. I should know more about, um, what's going on in the world, but, uh, like what is your take? I, I think you said something like this in, um, a piece you wrote or an interview you did where you were like, I never thought of myself as being an explicitly political writer, Yeah. but uh, the times that we're living in now, yeah. and I'm sure the times that you were living through in Turkey, they sort of force your hand. Yeah. You have to respond. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, it's not just, I didn't think of myself as a political writer. I thought of myself as an apolitical writer. I thought of politics as something that I was not interested in. And what I was interested in was the novel. And I, I thought that that was, I also thought that, 
I personally as a person was not that affected by history. And then I realized quite recently, like well into my 30s, that these that those ideas that I had were super historically conditioned, that they were partly from growing up in the 90s when, you know, which was a really notoriously apolitical time. And, you know, it was supposed to be the end of history. And I think it also came to some extent from my parents who who whose national culture was really um, this Turkish Republican culture that was in a, in a large part based on the irrelevance of pre-Republican history. Like it was really, it was based a lot on distancing the new Turkish identity from the old Ottoman identity. Uh, so then I also realized that my interest in the novel, which I thought of as this purely aesthetic kind of universal ideal interest in like art and narrative was super, not super political, but just completely inextricable from that the novel is inextricable from politics and from history. And that it's about the experience of being of negotiating between the individual and society in time. And you can't have like, that's the definition of politics. And I definitely, I don't, you know, I didn't become someone who like, you know, became a policy wonk and like listens to hours of political debate all the time. But I realized that, um, that the interests that I had in the novel were actually a way to understand the things that are happening now in the world. And that was a, was a realization that I reached when I was in, and in fact, when I was in Turkey in 2010, that was a time where I began to realize that my interest in Russian literature, which I thought of as being something that was again, like purely somehow purely, purely aesthetic and somehow like not nationalistic at all, even though obviously I knew in some way that like Russia's a nation and that Russian literature is a national literature. But I don't know, I just did, somehow didn't think, I just thought of like Russianness as an aesthetic. And then when I was in Turkey, there was this story that was especially both in Turkey and to an even larger extent in the, in the foreign press about Turkey. Um, there was the story about the secular elites versus the pious masses. And I realized that that is to a large extent, the story of the Russian novel. That's the, and, you know, especially for a writer like Dostoevsky, who, who I always thought of myself as actually not being that attracted to. Anyway, that's, that's when I realized that, that there's a reason that I, I named, you know, I've written two books and they're both named after Dostoevsky books. And, um, and <laughs> it's a sign. I, it's a way. sign. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I fully, like I went into book tour for the idiot having written now a second book with a Dostoevsky title and people would ask about Dostoevsky. And I was like, he's not that important a writer. And then I had to stop and think about it. And I realized that that's completely untrue. And did the time that you spent in Turkey, uh, what'd you say? 2010 to 2014. Mm -hmm, that's right. Like what did that inform your experience of 2016 in yeah, the States? Yeah. So much. So I mean, much. what did it teach you? Like, how did you come into 2016 having been in Turkey during that period? Like, did you, like did the perspectives, the perspectives you, um, not the perspectives Did the experiences you had there inform the perspective. Yeah. Like, how did it, how did that work? Yeah. Well, I got there, <clears throat> excuse me. I got there in 2010, which was at the, um, really the height of the popularity of Erdogan. Um, who Is that was, how you pronounce it? Yeah. I always want to say Erdogan. But it's yeah, a, it's a silent G. Oh, oh that's the, just, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's a silent G, Erdogan. Uh -huh. Erdogan. Um, yeah. He, uh, and it's Recep? Recep. Recep. The C is like Erdogan. a J. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I that should know better, brilliant. see? Um, so, uh, and there was a lot, there was like a stark polarization there that um, people on 
I think being more toward the, the secularist side myself and in my family, uh, I thought that it was the, the less secularist side that was exacerbating it. But of course they thought that it was the secular side that was exacerbating. Anyway, there was this like polarization and these, um, reciprocal narratives of victimhood where each, each part really felt itself this oppressed group and, and sort of in a way an oppressed minority and, and the, there was a similar kind of debate about like, I don't know, the identity of, of Erdogan's party was both this great, powerful mass and an oppressed minority at the same time. And they would kind of play both of those. And so in 2016 with the Trump campaign, one really saw the same exact thing happening where there was this polarization that was getting more and more heightened and, um, both sides seeing themselves as victims, the, the more, I but guess, how, how does that, okay. I, I don't yeah. mean to interrupt, no, but it's yeah. like you have these groups and like one numerically is a majority. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure you could suss it out. Like there's more pious people than there are secularists. Mm-hmm. I think that would probably be the case in the States. I would imagine. Is it the same in Turkey or what's the, what, like what is the majority? I don't know. It's hard to say because, because, Definitely the, the majority is, is people who, who believe in Islam. And yet when Atatürk was the leader, people still believed in Islam, but they also believed in secularism. They also, they, in terms of the function of the state, in terms of the function of the state and in terms of what was going to order society. And, you know, there are stories of soldiers joining the Republican army and fighting for the secular state and going into battle shouting Allah, Allah. And that didn't feel like a contradiction because I mean, I, I um, it didn't feel like a contradiction. Um, so it's, co- it's complicated and I, everyone has so many different identities and it's really just, it's a deception that there's, that there's only two, but when people play, play when people, when, when leaders can manipulate people correctly, they can get people to just identify with one versus another. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the point that I'm driving at is that it's like, okay, so who, who gets to claim oppression? Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, exactly. who's got the numbers in their favor. And then yeah. I think the deeper question is like, why as a population across a broad spectrum of ideologies and opinions and mm-hmm. identities and everything else, why is a population so susceptible to this? Yeah. Like, and is, or is it just human nature and it's always been thus, or is it social media and is it economic anxiety? And is it, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. was the, was the, um, situation just right for yeah. a guy like Trump to rise? And you know, like, it just seems like, it seems like something we're going to have to get to the bottom of. Like, how did this, like, I, I consider it like a, it seems toxic to me, like a toxicity yeah. or, a, you know, you can use disease metaphors. Like, how did this rise up in our, in our, in our country? Well, I mean, I think that <laughs> this is not my field of expertise and I, I'm just kind of me spitballing neither. here, but, <laughs> yeah. but, um, I think in the, in the old days, definitely in, in Turkey and, uh, and here too, um, we needed, laborers you needed you needed uneducated people to do physical labor and manual labor and to work the land and there were there were groups of people who saw dignity and and meaning in that and who didn't aspire to be you know there were social classes and the i mean i'm kind of i'm i'm 
kind of a, a leftist. So uh, I think that the the capitalists were basically exploiting all of these workers and had convinced them, and and you know using religion uh, that that what they were doing was noble and dignified. And then you know now we've come to a point where we don't need that many manual laborers anymore, and there's no way to be proud of not having education. There's no, there's no way to be like, I'm actually better because I didn't go to school. Although that is still something that people say. And that leads to this animus against elites and educated people. And I think we're just going to have that until we manage to arrange things so that education is available to more different people and people don't have to feel totally ripped off for not having the same access to or education just, yeah left out yeah left no. out of yeah and left. also like there, there's going to have to be some uh, some we've got to address like economically like what what do people like, what new skills do people learn like, yeah what, what are the new jobs yeah gonna exactly be if like everything's automated or yeah you know shipped overseas or whatever yeah but, or there has to be some kind of way of conferring dignity to people that isn't dependent on their doing a job like we have to figure out some other way of doing it maybe just have a podcast. Yeah, just so. <laughs> a po- podcast for all. It's a very democratic medium. Yeah. Um, so what is a, what is, like what is your take on Turkey? Like an uh, Erdogan? Like because there's been there was some what was it, a couple years ago where there was like an attempted coup. Yeah, that was in 2016. You know when that happened, there was an attempted coup in 2016, and it was at the it was right after Brexit. It was in the summer, and it was um, the Trump had. I guess he'd just gotten the nomination and it was a, it was a very, it it felt like all of these things were feeding off of each other. And, um, I just locked myself up and started to write. And and then I read this novel by Orhan Pamuk called A Strangeness in My Mind, which is, it's about this, this polarization in, in Turkey, but it's written from the perspective of someone who comes from the village, who's a migrant from the village and then comes to this big city. And, um, and he's this very sympathetic character. He, he sells, Boza, which is this Ottoman fermented beverage that nobody drinks anymore. So he's... What's all, it called? Boza. It's going to be in Whole Foods soon. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it improves digestion. Well, I mean, it might... I, I've never had it. I'm told that it's it's really not... It's, 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 it's an acquired taste and that the reason that people acquired it was because it had a very low alcohol content, but people would say it had no alcohol content. So in the Ottoman times when alcohol was not allowed, people would get boza and drink it to get drunk. But if you have access to anything else, supposedly... You, it's like kombucha. Yeah, well, my, my wife calls it her morning beer. Like that's it's, true, it's, and it's, kombucha is, po- is popular, so maybe Boza is the next kombucha. I'm telling you, they'll sell it because, like, the thing. Is, yeah, I mean, I really wouldn't be surprised. You heard it here first, folks. We're, so, we're breaking news. Yeah, there's going to be an app. There's going to be a Boza app, <laughs> and that's what we're all going to do to have dignity and meaning in the neoliberal world. Um, what oh, do you think? Or do you want? Do you have sorry. a finishing point? Oh well, I was reading that novel. Oh right. And it, uh, so it's from the perspective of someone on the other side of this polarized situation that I had felt myself to be in when I was in Turkey. And it's also, Orhan Pamuk does this amazing kind of geographical switch where there's like two Istanbuls and there's one, the one of the poor, which is on the outskirts and the one of the elites, which is the one that I saw. And you, you, as in those parts of the city, you would look and you would see these hills just covered with this government housing and be like, who lives there? What is going on there? And so he wrote this novel with this very detailed real estate 
And he did a, he did like seven years of basically sociological research in those neighborhoods, interviewing people. And then instead of writing a sociology book, he attached it to emotional stories and made it into a novel. And I found that at that time when it was harder and harder to read the news, that was, that book was the only thing that I read that made me feel better and made me feel able to see the other side's perspective without feeling it as an insult and an offense to myself. So I started to try to write something about the the novel and this moment of populism and elitism. And it turned into this huge essay about my uh, memories of actually the 1980 coup in Turkey when I was in Turkey and I was three years old and uh, it, it got so remember? huge. I can remember because... I, I, I probably, I don't remember a lot of other things when I was three, but I do remember this because my mother had left me in Turkey to go take her medical board exams, to study for her medical board exams. And she went back to Jersey city and I was just supposed to stay with her parents and her sister for a couple of weeks. And then there was a coup. So I didn't go back for several months. It's always inconvenient. When yeah. <laughs> there's a coup when you're three-year-olds in Turkey. Yeah. Know. Yeah. 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 It's it. Yeah. I mean, but that's just it, right? I, I had this feeling growing up and listening to the news that the news is something that that doesn't have to do with personal life or that when you turn on the news, it's men talking about the deeds of men and it doesn't really have anything to do with the lives of women and children. But of course it does. It's like, that's that's what it is. It's both. That's why Tolstoy wrote War and Peace and it's not just war. It's also peace because that's what history is. Um, so, so. I was trying to, and then of course, when I came back from the coup, I mean, I was too little, I guess, to know what it was then. Although I knew the word coup, which I had confused with the Turkish word for swan, which is coup. And the, there was a park there, Kula Park with swans in it, where I used to go. So, so for a long time, I had confusion between those things. And that swan park was actually a major political rallying point in 2013 when I was in Turkey for the Ankara wave of the, you know, anti-government protests. So uh, it was, it was this, so when I, when I came back and as I got older, the story of, oh, the time when I was in Ankara was something that we would talk about in my family. And I asked, you know, what was the coup and why was I there? And there was a certain story that I was told about it that, um, I kept revisiting every few years, um, which was basically a story that the coup, there was going to be a civil war and the coup prevented it. And the military protected Ataturk's feminist values against encroaching Islam and that was what I believed unquestioningly and then without thinking it was controversial. And then, you know, I realized that actually that was at the heart of the problems that were going on in Turkey when I was there in 2010. So history repeats itself. I mean, history is cumulative. It, it started then and it, it, it's still going on. So what do you think, uh, stateside, like, how do you see this ending? Do you have any like vision of what's going to happen? I don't, I don't see, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm no longer following it as closely as I was. And to be honest, I, I find it extremely, um, it just makes me heart sick when I read about Turkish politics and it, given the situation in Syria, I don't totally see how things are, are going to improve. And yet I also don't see how they can go on the way that they are going on. But in, in, in terms of the United States, Trump, like, what do you think, like, what's the end game there? Do you have any sense? Oh. I actually do not feel as pessimistic as I once felt about the United States. And I mean, partly that's because 
it, it feels like something like Trump had to happen because all of these people who are being ripped off, who for you know generations didn't realize they were being ripped off, suddenly realized it. And of course, they were going to be mad. And of course, they were going to be filled with hate. And I feel like we had to have that reckoning sooner or later. And then when I look back at the things that have happened in the past year, I mean, Confederate statues came down. They didn't come down when Obama was president. Me Too happened. Harvey Weinstein is out. That didn't happen when we had a sane, competent, humane president. It's happening now. So I, I think that it's been that the, things could go in a positive direction from here. And, I, and I, I've seen so much. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I just need someone to tell me because <laughs> I'm like sitting here like white knuckling it every day. I'm yeah. like, too much news. I, I read too much news and it's sort of like watching the play by play. And it's, it's like, yeah. roller, it's like a roller it's coaster. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's hard. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was in Turkey in 2013, I saw also the power of protesting and the power of organization and the way that imagination was able, that, that things that people hadn't imagined as possible, they were suddenly able to imagine as possible. And then there was this incredible utopian moment that happened in Turkey in 2015, where this party, the HDP, this Kurdish kind of utopian, anti-democratic, anti-nationalistic party that has an LGBTQ quota for and a, and a men and women quota that... Um, they reached uh, uh, the, the uh, amount of votes that they needed to get a presence in parliament. And that was this time when it looked like there was a concrete result that came from those anti-government protests and that the whole country had come together and had made a change for the better. And that ended up now, you know, the leaders of that party are in prison and there is like a huge crackdown against them, largely because of um ISIS related terrorism, which was due to Syria. So like there's so some people say, oh, that, you know, that's just proof that nothing good came out of those protests. But to me, I was I was kind of cynical about the protests to begin. You know, I thought, oh, this is just something that people are doing to make themselves feel good and to pretend that they're in the 60s. And then I saw that actually concrete, really exciting stuff was happening. And if, you know, if there hadn't been this huge geopolitical tragedy uh, on the other side of the border, maybe, maybe things could have gone better. So sometimes, um, sometimes you got to learn the hard way or you got to have, you have to go through this stuff. Yeah. That, that, that does make some sense to me. Like, yeah. you know, like it's like, you know, you have to like let the disease run its course or something like just to continue that metaphor. It's, yeah. It's not pleasant, but no, remember when not. Obama kept talking about how like the fever was going to break? Oh yeah. Yeah. Remember yeah. That? It's like, maybe this is it. Maybe yeah. this is like the last throes of it and some kind of fever is going to break. Yeah. We'll see. And it would, Yeah. We'll see. Well, uh, it's such a pleasure to meet you and to get a chance to talk with you. Congratulations on the paperback release of The Idiot. And what's that? What's are you working on the next book? There, there's another book in the in the works. Yes, I'm working on two books. One is going to be about Turkey in some way, and that's going to be called Swan Park, and is going to involve coups. And then I'm working on another book called uh, the working title is Either Or, and it's sort of a continuation of The Idiot, and it's also sort of um, it's a, no a novel and essays about um, fiction and nonfiction either or <laughs> yeah it's a novel yeah well and it's essays yeah at first it was going to be a novel and then um and then my ideas changed a lot actually um during me too and i'm still thinking about it now but i think it's going to be some combination of a novel and essays which i don't think of as being as opposed to each other as today's um book market considers considers them to be so so maybe it'll also be some sort of manifesto about reconciling the novel and essays interesting yeah. Well, I wish you luck. Thank you very much. This has been so fun. 
Okay, guys, there you go. That is Elif Bodeman. Her novel, The Idiot, is out there now from Penguin Books, just released in a fine paperback edition. Go get your copy. You can find Elif online at elifbodeman.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle there is at Banana Karenina. She's on Instagram. Uh, her handle there is E. Bodeman. She's probably on Facebook, too. But, you know, track her down on the Internet. Go say hello. The Idiot, available now in trade paperback from Penguin. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Uh, appreciate it, Kill Rockstars. Be sure to check out what they've got going on over at killrockstars.com. The music at the very top of the show is uh, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Check them out down in New Orleans. If you would uh, like to get the Other People app, it's free. It's a great way to listen. Go do that. If you uh, would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, it's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So, yeah, you know, it's great talking to Elif. And, you know, it's it's sort of timely because she's writing this book, drawing on all this material that she uh, worked on in her youth. And I I can relate to that right now with what I've got going on creatively. And it's just always nice to see people who are coming out the other end of that process with something uh, worthwhile. And with, like, you know, their sanity intact. (laughs) I need that. But it does feel sort of interminable, this creative process that I'm in. Like, I'm I'm sticking with it for some reason. But I'm like, when when is it going to get good? When is this thing going to round into shape? I need it to round into shape. I need it to be communicating something in a a way that feels whole. And in a a way that feels tolerable and uh, somehow transcendent. got to stick with it i do have this sense too that like maybe this like this be one book i just spend the rest of my life writing it and then when i die you just release it whatever state that it's finally in i don't know what the title would be in that case the project the interminable suffering (laughs) endless noodling constant rejiggering it's just not good enough so Twiggy uh, my new puppy is responding well to training I have to tell you that she's doing very well she's going to get her final round of vaccinations uh, this week we're going to be able to take her out on a leash and uh, get her out into society let her make her debut get her some real exercise it's a it's a situation where when you have a puppy they start to get to a point physically where they need to go run around and like you know, have walks and stuff like that. But you can't take them out without these vaccinations because you don't want the dog to get parvovirus and then die. And yet when I go to a puppy kindergarten with Twiggy, because we do that, we take our dog to a school to get, them so, you know, get her socialized and meet other dogs and stuff. The other dog owners are like, oh, yeah, you know, my vet was like, don't worry about it. She's got two rounds of uh, vaccinations. She can go for a walk. But my vet errs on the side of caution and says, no, do not take her out. And so part of me is like, you know what? It's going to be fine. I'm just going to take the dog for a walk. Why am I so fucking paranoid? But then I'm like, what if my dog is the one dog that gets parvovirus and then my kid's puppy dies? And it's my fault because I couldn't just wait a week. You see what I'm saying? So I'm just going to suck it up. I'm just going to carry the dog around, keep her in the backyard. She's going a little stir crazy. It's driving everybody nuts. But 
we're going to get that last round of vaccinations and have some peace of mind before we take her out into this filthy city riddled with uh, errant canine feces and God knows what viruses. It's a process. It's a lot of work. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was fun. It was. I put this together right at the end of the uh, day. Under the wire. All right, I'm going to go eat something. I'm hungry. (laughs) 